0: Russia is the world's biggest country, 17 million square kilometres. Its most famous cities are obviously Moscow and St. Petersburg, but the beating heart is this vast hinterland known as the Steppe, and it borders Mongolia, China and the Central Asian republics. Around this territory, Vladimir Putin has built an ideology called Eurasianism, and it's influenced strongly by Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Professor Gary Saul Mawson of Northwestern University in the U.S. writes about Eurasianism in the New York Review of Books. Eurasianism, which defines Eurasia, is an
1: ideology that arose about a century ago, originally among some white Russian émigrés, to redefine Russianness. And the idea was that the Slavophiles and Pan-Slavists were mistaken. Russians are constantly concerned with the question, what does it mean to be Russian? in a way that I don't know anybody else is. But their idea was that with the leader of the Slavs, whereas the Eurasianists thought, no, no, too many of those Slavs have been westernized, like the Poles or the Czechs we are closest not to the language group with which we are affiliated by origin but to the geographical entity of eurasia which that is we're closest to the mongols and all the central asian peoples because we share a similar cultural spirit that was the idea then ideology after ideology kind of developed upon this one more peculiar than the next What they all have in common was a sense that Russia is something radically different from Europe. Mm.
0: They're people of the steppe, I think. Uh, That's how uh, I think you describe it. What's the steppe? Just to remind us.
1: The steppe is this vast, vast plain that extends several thousand miles across Russia, all the way across the Siberian flatland. And it's generally rather barren, not completely, but rather barren. But it this way if you grow up there, if you take your identity from there, it's not like the English Lake District. It couldn't be more, more different from the land that Wordsworth wrote about. There's a sense of forsakenness, loneliness, barrenness, trouble for survival you don't have in the cozy places like, you know, the Netherlands.
0: Yeah, it's a very good image, I can tell you, as someone who who took a train from Beijing to Scotland via the Russian steppe and the Lake District. I know exactly what you're speaking about, Gary. Even though Eurasia, though, incorporates um, many cultures and places, many of them in particular follow Islam, how has Christianity come to, in some ways, symbolize the character or the aspirations of Eurasianism. That's what I found so fascinating in your piece. The sense is that the cultural difference between Europe and the
1: steppe peoples is more important than the fact that the Europeans have one branch of Christianity, more than one, and the Russians another. Many of the um, Eurasianists today would say that orthodoxy is closer to Islam than to Catholicism, which sounds like a very weird thing to say, but if you're starting out with that notion that we are fundamentally different from the Europeans, you're going to wind up with something
0: like that. I was intrigued at the way you have this collection of Turkic, Mongolian, Central Asian cultures, and yet somehow they seem to be upholding a broad Christian moral ethos.
1: I Actually, the ethos is that they are fundamentally a people that gravitate to authoritarianism, whereas you know the Westerners gravitate to some form sort of liberalism. The real enemy, you see, from all the phases of Eurasianism is what they say of as Western liberalism. You don't get that with Mongols, and so they feel or with Islamists, so they feel closer to them. Mm. Is Christianity authoritarian or the world wealth, it can be either, obviously. In in Russia, it's more it tends to be more
0: authoritarian. Some of this thinking does ring true though, because I'm intrigued by this division that you bring out in your article, and you referred to it there between the oceanic peoples and the continental peoples. What's this idea?
1: The idea that the Eurasianists entertain is that people are in one way or another defined by their geography. Geography creates or shapes a civilization extensively, if you are a seafaring people, you develop a kind of cosmopolitan ethos, it's much easier to reach other places, let's say, across the Mediterranean Sea than across the frozen tundra. Sea travel is much cheaper than land travel. That's why people use it whenever they can. So it's bound to be the case that you're going to get much more isolation from a continental power. Now, if you look at the map at Russia, yes, it's got a few openings to the sea, but you know, in the north, it's frozen up there much of the year. Eventually, they reach the Black Sea, but they don't have that the whole time, and it's a relatively small area compared to the whole expanse of the country. And indeed, even that is closed off by whoever controls you know, the straits at Istanbul or Constantinople, right? So, Russia is completely a landlocked country. And some of the other Turkic republics there are, what I think geographers call doubly landlocked. That is, not only do they have no opening to the sea, but the states around them also have no opening to the sea. I mm. mean, they're deeply embedded. Uh, Russia, at least, has some sort of opening to the sea. But the general consciousness is they are this vast amounts of territory, sometimes quite forbidding, that you have to cross, and that. Creates a very different world than think of the Mediterranean. Okay, where you go from Greece to Sardinia to France to North Africa, and it's all sort of one large community, right? And was even in antiquity when sailing was harder. The conscious of being, you know, let's say English is being an island that is constantly trading. That's never been Russia. Peter the Great had to burst. By sheer military conquest to get some sort of opening to the sea, you know, which he did and then built Petersburg there, that was a major military accomplishment.
0: Gary, Russia and the Eurasian ideology criticises uh, the Western liberal ideal as promoting individual sort of aspiration or self-realisation ahead of the national culture, to make that charge, that does make Eurasianists seem very authoritarian, I know, but are they on to something in the sense that, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of critics on the left and the right have, have made this um, argument that we have these deep fractures in much of Western liberal society. We can't agree on matters of human biology. We think that our societies are irredeemably bad. So are the Eurasianists on to something in their critique of Western liberalism?
1: Yes, you you raise a really good question. I mean, of course, their critique of Western liberalism is not just of its current form, but of what it would be in England 150 years ago. It's that whole ethos, which is very different. But the way liberalism is working itself out right now in Europe and and North America makes it much further from anything they're used to. And indeed, even than liberal Europeans were used to 50 years ago. So it seems very peculiar. And when they read about, you know, cancel culture with, you know, you're calling us authoritarian, it seems so peculiar to them just the way it does, for example, to traditional believers in Islam, that it's easy to rally people around it. Much easier, for example, than it was in the 1860s when Europeans just looked like a more progressive, better, freer people, different, but someone to emulate. Now it looks like a terrible threat and say, in any case, you're distinguishing yourself from them, but it's easier now to rally people against the liberal West because of the particular form that liberalism is taking the last fifteen or 20 years.
0: Yes, this is the Religion and Ethics Report. We're speaking with Professor Gary Saul Mawson. Gary is the Professor of Arts and Humanities at Northwestern University. We're discussing his latest essay in the New York Review of Books. It's called Russian Exceptionalism. Another point I found intriguing, it seems truly wacky, is that ethnicity is biological it's not social it's not about language it's biological but at the same time it's not racial in very simple terms gary explain this theory that seems to animate some eurasianists
1: you're thinking of the sort of the middle phase of eurasianism which is identified with a thinker called lev gumilyov who is probably the intellectually strongest although perhaps craziest person from you know a scientific perspective but he had it's a very complex idea of how ethnic groups form. For him, ethnicities were a biological fact of the world. Human beings, he thought, always form into ethnicities in just the way that you know other animals form flocks or herds. You see, that's a form of human living. And then how do ethnicities form? He had this really peculiar theory about excess energy coming from outer space and creating genetic changes, which lead certain people to have extraordinary energy and willingness to self-sacrifice and overcome the survival instinct. And then they become charismatic and inspire others. And it's that inspiration that of others who form around them that forms an ethnicity. Mm. But the other form around them, you see, don't start out necessarily as the same bloodlines, same ethnic group.
0: So this is how they, how he says it's not racial, it's not racist. Exactly.
1: It's not racist in origin because different ethnicities and bloodlines come together to form an ethnic group. Once they've come together, this functions in the same way that a racial view would, but it's not racial in origin, so they can claim it's not racial, whereas in fact, the way it functions, it might as well be.
0: So, according to this thinking, a man or woman in Moscow is of the same ethnicity as someone in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. That is their thinking, that they're all united.
1: They would call it a super-ethnicity. you follow me? I mean, you know, there are ethnic group, just as people can gather together in ethnic groups. They can divide into sub-ethnic groups and formulate into super-ethnic groups uh, so that you know, various Turkic peoples are an ethnic group different from the Russians, but they're very close. And so they form the same super ethnicity. That's technically the way they
0: would argue. Your essay introduces us to many odd, compelling, but quite odd thinkers. But the most well-known is Alexander Dugan, who's Putin's sort of in-house philosopher. How has Dugan become perhaps the most famous and, and powerful of these apostles of Eurasianism?
1: I have my doubts that he is Putin's private philosopher. It's more I think Putin is willing to use any popular ideologue that will fit his agenda. Dugin certainly fits his agenda. He was calling for invading Ukraine even before it happened. So it fits his agenda. I'm not sure Putin buys, well, this weird ideology, but he's certainly willing to use it. And he buys some sort of nationalist ideology. He hardly cares, I think, which one, as long as it serves his purpose, which is to extend Russian power. And any ideology will serve. But Dugin believes, or I assume he believes, because it's hard to tell when he's serious at all, uh, this kind of ideology, which um, he calls a fourth ideology. The first in his typology is the most evil thing that was ever created on earth, which is liberalism. and has to be wiped out entirely. Number two and three are fascism and communism. They're a lot better than liberalism is new. And what we need to do is, they're shortcomings, but we need to synthesize them into a fourth ideology and then give it a Russian tinge. And that's what he claims to represent, this fourth ideology. Hmm. Well, if you take this view, of course, it's going to lead to the idea of Russian exceptionalism in the sense that who is going to save the world from this evil liberalism? Well, it has to be non-liberal powers. There are a lot of them, but since Russia has the most experience in fighting liberalism, Russia will lead all the other powers, this is the idea, in fighting the West. In that sense, they start out as being you know, the leader of the Eurasian peoples, but the Eurasian peoples then become the leader of all other non-liberal people, so the Russians become the leader of everybody who's not Western against the West. That's kind
0: of the logic by which Dugan works. Dugan is not a very profound thinker. Well, he does seem to have at least styled his appearance on that of Rasputin, <laughs> which is, I think, yeah. part of possibly what he's uh, he's trying to portray. Thank you so much for explaining all this to us, Professor Gary Saul Mawson. He's the Lawrence B. Dumas Professor of Arts and Humanities at Northwestern University in the United States. His latest book is called Wonder Confronts Certainty Russian Writers on the Timeless Questions and Why Their Answers Matter. And we've been discussing his latest essay in the New York Review of Books. It's called Russian Exceptionalism. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you. ABCRN helps you understand the world.